Hi, and welcome to this exciting episode of Plastic Surgery Weekly. I'm your host, Clint Evans, and my special guest today is Dr. Paul Leong. How are you doing, Dr. Leong? I'm doing well, Clint. How are you? I am doing fantastic, and we had a nice little conversation before the show and talking a little bit about those details. But before we get into that deep dive, tell me a little bit about your background and practice. Absolutely, Clint. So um, in terms of me uh, personally, um, uh, as I was growing up, I sort of got moved around a bit. I actually grew up in London, England uh, till I was about eight years old, then moved uh, to Amsterdam for two years, uh, then coming to the United States at age 10. I, um, I went, uh, as we were talking about before the show, I went to the University of Texas at Austin. Um, so I'm, uh, I'm a proud Longhorn and, uh, you know, studying in the same city that you are right now in Austin, Texas. But finished up that and then went up to medical school at uh, Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut. And then uh, towards the end of medical school, I, I, I was very interested in sort of the anatomy and some of the uh, the treatments, diseases of the head and neck area. So I came here to a terrific surgical training program at uh, the University of Pittsburgh uh, Medical Center, and I did seven years of uh, dedicated surgical training um, in the head and neck area. During that training, I, I, I sort of came to understand that I was that I was really quite fascinated with uh, facial plastic surgery. So it's important to understand, Clint, I do plastic surgery essentially above the shoulders. I'm totally focused on the face and neck. So I went out to um, uh, in Portland, Oregon, to the Oregon Health Sciences University and did a dedicated fellowship where all we did was facial plastic surgery. And so uh, after that, moved back to Pittsburgh. And so I practice. My practice is basically completely cosmetic, and I do surgical and non-surgical treatments off the face and neck. And I've got, uh, I've got five offices around Pittsburgh, so, uh, so I, and I love what I do. Excellent, excellent. So that's a fantastic background, Dr. Leong. What was it that got you into plastic surgery, or what was it that attracted you to this specialty of medicine? Well, I'll tell you, Clint. I, um, you know, like I mentioned to you, I came, uh, I came into my residency training studying head and neck surgery, which is, it's uh, head head and neck surgery involves basically anything that can go wrong, big tumors, if you've got problems with uh, sinusitis, if you need surgery of your ear. So it was a comprehensive, if you need to do a dissection into the neck, it was a comprehensive sort of surgical introduction, very deep surgical introduction to, you know, the head and neck area. But then when you finish your head and neck surgery, otolaryngology residency program, um, you know, you can choose to subspecialize beyond that. And so there were certain characteristics to facial plastic surgery. I think all of it, you know, there's functional and there's cosmetic, but particularly some of the cosmetic facial plastic surgery that, you know, I came to understand was appealing to me. Um, You know, I think most people intuitively understand a couple of things. When you're doing, you know, something like a rhinoplasty or a nose job or a facelift where you're sort of sculpting the appearance of the face, you know, the outcome um, is intrinsically subjective you know uh, yep. you know it truly is it sounds cliche but there is I think a level of a heightened level of creativity and sort of an artistic input you know if you take out you know somebody's thyroid gland which is a surgery I did many times listen it's an elegant procedure and certainly you need to be very skilled to do that but I can tell you at the end of the day you know there's sort of I don't know 15 steps or something like that and you go in and you get the gland out and you know you don't bang up any of the nerves or any other structures in there and then you you, you know you close the incision and, and quite honestly you try to do it as quickly as you can 
um, uh, you know, uh, it, it, to me, um, that's a fabulous procedure. But on the other hand, when you're doing facial plastic surgery, the thing that was a big draw to me, Clint, is it's is, is, is its artistic and, and creative component. And I'll tell you one other thing, is, is the underlying motivation to undergo um, uh, you know, facial plastic surgery. Yet again, you could call it sort of subjective in its own right. Um, you know, everybody gets it, right? I mean, nobody has to do um, you know, facial plastic surgery, certainly cosmetic facial plastic surgery. You know, if you find out you've got a tumor in your thyroid gland, well, you know what, you're gonna want it out. And so this influences, in a sense, the nature of your communication with your patients. This is not something that they need, per se. This is something that they want. And so, uh, you know, uh, you, you, you truly, I think it, the, the, comp, uh, the, the communication with the patient is sort of subtle in that sense. You know, you're trying to weigh up, do they have reasonable expectations? Is this a good candidate for surgery? Not just anatomically, but in terms of the nature of their motivations. And then, of course, there's the other level of, you know, then, then you know, you want to get onto the same page about, geez, here's my artistic vision, and does it coincide with yours? So it's, you know, and believe me, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, biased against other forms of medicine. It's all marvelous, but there's sort of a subtlety to both the outcomes and the the, the communication with the patient that was just very appealing to me. Gotcha. Yeah, and you taught, you hit on that big point about matching or getting close to where the expectations match. Of here's what you can do for the patient, and the patient being on board, saying, "Yeah, that's what I was looking for," or you know, as close to it where I'm going to be very happy with the outcome. That's right. Cause That's right. Sometimes, like you said, there are anatomical limitations that if somebody looks like, uh, I don't even know what a good example is um, to context, but if they want to look like a certain celebrity and it's like, right. well, you just don't, your facial structure is wider or rounder or taller or whatever, and your bone structure just won't make that happen. Uh, that's exactly correct, Clint. You know, um, you, you know, you you need to, you know, and we've come to be very respectful of what the different patients. You know, we don't think we have a monopoly on what looks good. Like I, well, like I was just mentioning, it is fundamentally subjective. Okay, um, you know, some people come in, and you know, we have a huge emphasis in our practice, as it says it right on the front of our our website. You know, if it doesn't look natural, it doesn't look good. And we have we have sort of a constant sort of religious type emphasis on that what we think is uh, you know makes sense for the patients that we serve, but we've come to realize, Clint, that you know that's not a universally um, held belief either by um, surgeons in some cases and and certainly not by patients. Some people sort of want a little bit more of a stylized look. You know, I, I I'm certainly not judgmental about whether you should get your ears gauged or not, but you you know you get it. I mean across all societies, and frankly, all times in history, some people want to look a little bit exceptional, want to look a little bit different, and and therefore it really is. It's an important uh, goal to match, you know, your your vision of what's artistic and aesthetic and beautiful to that of your patient. And if the match is not quite right, then the best thing to do is just, you know, you communicate clearly and plainly and transparently about it, and you know, you just sort of say, hey, listen, you know, this. You know this. Uh, you know we may not be the right match. I mean, there's no no harm in or no foul. But but you know you may want to you know uh, you know seek out those services elsewhere. And that's the best thing to do for the patient. Yeah, and it builds a lot of goodwill rather than subjecting them and and convincing them 
to do a multiple five five figure surgery and then they're unhappy with the results and get get mad about exactly it post right. bad stuff and and the whole deal from there exactly right and i as a history buff you touched on a point there about how beauty is not a universal thing well the concept of beauty is universal but the actual definition and what beauty is over time has had dramatic shifts in you know back in the renaissance and maybe even the late middle ages there a much rounder fuller person i think on both sides male and female was considered beautiful because then they could get they were perceived as wealthier could afford more food and a better life and all that and that's where you see in all those paintings and now it's a you know more fit tone because we know at least here in the u.s the food supply is uh, for the most part there people have access to that absolutely absolutely and so you know there are there are different cultural norms. Uh, you know we often discuss this at plastic surgery meetings. You know the you know a beautiful face is changing. You know the face of America is changing to a certain degree. Um, we're far more exposed to you know media from around the world, and so all of these things blend um, in terms of in terms of what patients come in and request. Um, in terms of in terms of you know how we respond to them as to you know what's a, what's a what's a, what's a terrific goal what's a good goal and and we always emphasize again going back to this you know what's a good goal in our impression you know we're not dictatorial about this you know we we can you know honorably and and amicably agree to disagree um, but but it's very important I think to you know agree to a very large degree before you enter into you know, um, uh, you know, caring for a patient, treating a patient, operating on a patient, um, and and and, uh, and 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 creating a result that hopefully they'll be thrilled with. But if that communication wasn't wasn't as good as it ought to be on the front end, then then the path can be strewn with difficulties. And who wants that? Yeah, exactly. And you have a real unique take on some of these procedures, where you feel that. Facial surgical procedures versus non-surgical procedures are complementary instead of an either-or situation. And um, interviewing a number of surgeons and looking around a number of different websites, this is a very unique mindset and approach. What do you see as the biggest benefit you feel this mindset and approach brings to the patient? Well... You know, if you'd walked into if you'd walked into a, uh, a plastic surgeon or a facial plastic surgeon's office, you know, 15 or 20 years ago, you know, uh, this is not 100% true, but I can tell you it's pretty close to 100% true. You were pretty much talking about the knife, okay? Because you know you were talking about surgery. Because a lot of the energy, a lot of the innovation in aesthetics. Uh, you know, facial plastic surgery really, really has been on the non-surgical side, right? I mean, 15, 20 years ago, this is pre-Botox, pre-most fillers. Yep. You know, we didn't have many aesthetic lasers, and those that we had were very crude. You know, it's uh, improved greatly, you know, what we're able to do. There are, you know, very new technology advices, uh, devices that, you know, make claims that sometimes I think are, you know, pretty accurate. Sometimes they're a little bit exaggerated, and, and it's terribly important that you're super clear about that with the patients. 
patients are increasingly attuned to the fact that you know there's industrial you know sort of interests behind these uh, these devices and whatnot, and they need to you know they need to have their sort of slightly skeptical consumer hat on when they do these things. But to your question, Clint, you know in terms of this you know blending surgical and non-surgical, we're now living in a world unlike 15 years ago where absolutely. You know, there's a ton of indications. Gee, somebody comes in and talks about my lower eyelids seem a little bit baggy. You know, there are surgical and non-surgical things that we can go about, that we can do, that can help the patients quite a bit. We're always, you know, very clear about the pros and cons of, you know, doing something a non-surgical way or a surgical way. When I say it's complementary, let's take a simple example. Let's just say that a patient, male or female, comes in and decides, geez, I'm going to have a facelift. Um, and so the facelift is, by and large, aimed at improving sort of sagging jowls, you know, neck skin hanging down a little bit, you know, turkey gobbler or whatever, or whatever other colloquialism we have for that you know, some improvement in the position of what we'd call the mid-face or the cheeks. You know, but there's a ton of other things, right? I mean, if somebody's, you know, we have lots of, again, male and female patients, lots of professionals coming in saying, geez, those those two vertical lines between my eyebrows, uh, you know, I'm not loving that. You know, my, my clients or my friends or whoever, you know, says I look a little angry, look a little concerned. You know, in a contemporary plastic surgery, that's treated with Botox, which is a non-surgical thing. So, you know, by no means, just because a patient gets a facelift does not mean that six months later they're not going to be like, you know, absolutely, let's, you know, either do Botox for the first time or let's keep up with the Botox I've been doing for, for five years. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of um, facial rejuvenation, say, in, in, in patients who are a little bit older, is about volumization. Okay, so in addition to doing something like a facelift, you may do fat transfer, which is transferring fat from some other part of the body, um, you know, into the face in order to imbue the face with a little bit of more youthful volume. The face slowly loses volume as as you age. Like a cheek augmentation Um, procedure? Cheek augmentation, which can be done, you know, you could do cheek augmentation with a certain kinds of facelifts, achieve a certain degree of cheek augmentation if you just, you're attentive to your technique. Others might require some fat transfer. On the other hand, you could do, you could do anything from a cheek implant to you could do fillers, right? You can do, you can do fillers with a tremendous amount of precision. Some patients find, uh, you know, for instance, I mentioned fat uh, transfer. Well, fat transfer, if you're dealing with an honest surgeon, he's going to tell you. I just gave a lecture about this in Portland, uh, Oregon, but uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, you know, there's a certain degree of variability that underlies your results with, with fat transfer. Sometimes what we call the take the percent yield of fat that actually sort of stays with you over the long term is variable. Sometimes it's great, sometimes it's not so great. If it's not so great, well, guess what? I mean, you could do fat transfer again, or you could do fillers right in the office if you don't want to go back to the operating room. And so we find, Clint, that surgical tools and non-surgical tools are, you know, just two different sort of, you know, sort of tools in our armamentarium to to get terrific results for patients, and they very often go hand in hand. And you know, you know, perhaps some of my bias on this, you know, last point on your question is that we find it's terrifically advantageous for the patient um, if the person, the doctor they're talking to, is sort of equally, shall we say, skilled um, or trained and equally enthusiastic 
about both surgical and non-surgical tools because it's just the you know the world is a practical place. If you're a physician who's kind of mostly into non-surgical stuff, and you know here you are Bob or Betty, you come in for a consultation and you're like, well, geez, doctor, what should I do about this? I'm 55 years old and I'm not so happy about this, you know X Y Z. Well, you know, if you either are just, you know, if you're a big-time surgical aficionado, you know, guess what? You're likely to propose surgery. And on the other hand, if, you, if you're pretty much mostly into, you know, squirting, squirting fillers out of a needle or Botox or lasers, you're likely to lean into that. And so I, I find that just like anything in the world, if you're talking to somebody who sort of, you know, is on both sides of that process, because both sets of tools are useful, effective, and could be the right match for patients, but when you're talking to a doctor who who is sort of equally committed to both, then in my sense, um, in my mind, uh, you're likely to get a more balanced response. Yeah, and I want to thank you. I love to learn something new every day, and yeah. I did not know before this the word armamentarium. <laughs> That's a good one. I was thinking you were going to go with armory, and then you broke that out. It's like, oh, all right, new book. Has. Better than the word of the day calendar, just talk to Dr. Leon. So, as we get into our next topic, Dr. Leon, there are lots of disruptions happening, whether it be by technology, by the internet, ideas can spread, collaborations can happen with a lot less friction today than 10, 15 years ago. So, it is leading to a lot of disruptions and even eliminations of certain industries. What do you see as a big threat or disruption to plastic surgeons and their practices? a great question listen you know when you um when you when you pick up a newspaper or you, and you read about the world or you look at a ted talk or something like that uh you know absolutely you know it's at, at one turn you're hearing about uh, ai or artificial intelligence and robotics um, which is a big deal here in pittsburgh you, know, you didn't know i was an automaton did you what's that i say you didn't know i was an automaton did you <laughs> yes, you know, you know, Clint, you know, as you do know, there's a, there's a fantastic company up in Chicago where, uh, the, you know, this is this is, I mean, a machine learning, uh, uh, you know, code uh, writes journalism, writes sports stories, and if you read these sports stories, it'll knock your socks off. I mean, it, they they take yes. basic statistics and they'll write a story about a baseball game that you saw last night, and it sounds and feels like a human wrote it. <laughs> so. You know, it's um, it's definitely um, you know there there are interesting trends all over the world. You know, but to your to your question, you know, what about the plastic surgery business? You know, I'll tell you. I think that um, you know, if you talk to plastic surgeons over the last five or ten years, um, you know, they'd say, well, geez, what about these? You know, talk to a guy like me. You know, I'm I'm in solo practice. Most people who do what I do are in solo practice. Um, you know, uh, you know, there are sort of industrial scale business models where, you know, people are offering cosmetic services and, you know, they sort of, they saturate uh, the airwaves or your Comcast, a cable TV channel with sort of infomercial-esque type things talking about, you know, some sort of a, some sort of a, you know, rapid way to do a facelift or something like that, um, you know, or, you know, some new gizmo that's going to, you know, you're going to fire it at your belly and your belly's going to become tauter and tighter or something like this. <laughs> um, you know these entities. Um, you know, you know, uh, you know, potentially well capitalized. They've got, uh, 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 you know, sort of uh, the big advertising budget, right? 
but I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I think that there's a, you know, so I think if you just randomly walked around a plastic surgery meeting a few years ago, they'd be like, wow, these guys, you know, they, geez, they moved into my marketplace and what have you. And, uh, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm interested, maybe a little anxious about what kind of an impact that's going to have on, on me. Um, you know, but I'll tell you, there's a powerful counter trend. You know, I believe we're headed into an era of sort of in, enhanced transparency. You know, patients, consumers, you could say, have a voice. And so, for example, I mean, you know, I'm not naming anything particular, but, you know, the largest sort of, you know, business of this kind, you know, they were, I don't know, they were in 30 states or something like that, um, just went pause up, went bankrupt about five months ago. Um, and this was a major force, okay, uh, that had, you know, probably, you know, huge numbers of, I mean, <laughs> ridiculous numbers of hours of advertising and what have you, and, you know, everything in the newspapers and stuff like this. Um, and why? Uh, because, uh, you know, it's interesting. I mean, the truth tends to tends to sort of shift out, uh, you know, leak out, you could say. And basically, um, you know, these highly sort of volume-oriented, um, you know, um, you know, push, push, push the patients, you know, through the process quickly without, without sort of, <laughs> sounds goofy, but the loving care and attention that somebody who's, you know, you know, taking, uh, understands that their reputation over a period of decades will rest on this. I think, um, you know, I mean, the frank truth is that people were pretty vocal about, um, you know, that they didn't, they didn't like the nature of their outcomes and they also didn't like the nature of the process. And so um, they're gone. And so, I, listen, I think, um, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe that's one answer. Uh, geez, um, you know, industrial scale, commercial uh, things. Another thing you could talk about, Clint, would be sort of just kind of one of the main, you know, emphasis of this interview, sort of the non-surgical um, sort of, you know, like I sort of tongue-in-cheek was saying, you know, you know, you find something on an Internet site or mm -hmm. you'll find some social media, you know, this, these, you know, commercial group, you know, perfectly happy to infiltrate the, the, the social media, you know, environments. And I'm thrilled about this thing that you fire this light up my belly and, and, and you know, I swear to goodness I look a lot better. Um, you know, I think surgeons who, who like to do surgery, and as I've said, I'm equally enthusiastic about non-surgical tools, you know, they're like, geez, you know, just uh, everything that you, any, any indication you could talk about, um, there's now this sort of sort of non-surgical thing. Uh, I think, listen, I think the, the, the nature of what we do, are we going to be doing more non-surgical things in the future? Quite possibly. Uh, but ultimately, patients understand it's about a quality outcome and a quality experience where you're in the hands of somebody that trusts you. And so, you know, like anything else in the world, I mean, you know, if you were, you know, if you were, you know, into weaving textiles by hand in 1820, by 1860, uh, you know, you're hurting. Yeah. Um, you know, what you need to do is, is, is be somewhat adaptive and what have you. But at the end of the day, I believe because of this fabulously enhanced in, in transparency, which I think is a powerful, um, uh, powerful benefit to patients, I think fundamentally quality still wins in the end. And if anything, I think it's easier and easier and easier to find where the quality is. It's like finding a restaurant. You know, you look at those reviews and it's hard to hide if you're doing, if you're doing crummy, uh, you know, if you're making crummy Tex-Mex down in Austin, you're not going to last. Right. Yeah, you're right. The, uh, the textile guys were not liking Eli and his cotton gin, uh, during right. the 1860s. Right. And so to your point, having that transparency and educating the patients and your ability to draw out exactly what their motivations are, what those expectations are, and then saying, yes, we can meet that by bringing the proper tool out of your medical toolbox, whether that be surgical or non-surgical, adds a huge amount of value, builds that trust, and 
gets that fantastic outcome that both parties love and uh, get get great uh, movement forward from from there. So yeah, yeah, I think you're on the money. And as we move into our final topic for today, Doctor Leong, what has been the main driver you feel that's been driving the growth of your practice? You know, I think that um, you know, as, as we've built our practice here in Pittsburgh, um, a, a number of uh, a number of concepts, a number of uh, a number of sort of trends. One thing is that, as I've sort of alluded to, you know, previously, um, you know, our practice is, is is extremely focused. Okay, we, I mean, I only do I only do six or eight procedures. Okay. Um, and you know that's you know the, the biggest. I mean, forty percent of my practice is what we call you know rhinoplasty or nose jobs. I'd say about um, you know forty-five percent of it is what we sort of charmingly in the industry refer to as aging face procedures. So this is you know facelifts, upper and lower eyelid lifts, brow lifts, some of that fat transfer procedure I talked to you about. Um, and so we're extremely, extremely focused. And you know what? What I think patients have come to appreciate—it's kind of like if you go into an orthopedic surgeon's practice. If you were there, you know, 30 years ago in Austin, Texas, or up here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and you went into an orthopedist's office, you know, you're liable to have found, you know, sort of, you know, two or three guys, hardworking guys, and you know, doing orthopedics and doing all of orthopedics. You know, if you broke your arm, or if you needed your hip done, or if there's something wrong with your hand, or what have you. Whereas I think most places in the country, and you don't need to go into, you know, big academic medical centers. If you go into an orthopedist practice, you'll find there's quite a few of them. There may be a dozen in that practice, and they're all very subspecialized, right? Mary is the hand surgeon, and Bob is the spine guy. And, you know, if your mm-hmm. spine needs work, you want Bob. Yeah. And so I would say in terms of, you know, uh, you know, answering your question, in terms of drivers, patients um, have tuned into this. Okay, it's kind of like if you think about your work, Clint, or what anybody does. You know, geez, you know, if you're working in downtown Dallas and you're uh, you're an attorney, you're not just you know you're you're not like some sort of comprehensive know everything about the law. Okay, <laughs> you're yeah. into uh, you know you're into oil and gas contracts, and not only that, you're you're you 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 can talk all day about horizontal drilling and fracking. Okay, right. Um, and and you better know your topic because because you know uh, all of these topics they become more granular they become more complicated and it's absolutely no different in medicine you know so i think one driver is we're extremely focused and patients have come to understand that you know listen if you if you want your tummy tuck done well you know i'm not your guy okay i, I we don't do it um, but the things that we do do, we're very passionate about. You know, if you you know you go on our site, you know, I, I lecture at various meetings around the nation and around the world. I was in in Asia lecturing a few months ago. You know, we put all those we put all those uh, presentations up unedited on our website, and so patients can see what we're passionate about. They can see what we're focused on, and so I think I think they're they're in that groove. Uh, you know, a second topic would be almost related to the first, and it's kind of related to what we've talked about. Um, you know, in terms of drivers for our practice, I can tell you, um, you know, we don't spend much, we don't do much on advertising, but, mm. you know, these, yeah, these reviews, okay, mm-hmm. there's, it's a rare patient, Clint, who comes into our practice who doesn't say, yeah, you know, listen, I've learned about this procedure and I've been doing some, quote, research there you on go. the different providers in this, in this area. And I'll tell you. Deep you research, know, people, those first 10 spots in Google. Absolutely. <laughs> and so... And so, you know, people get it. You know, if you've got some shiny, glossy ad in your local, you know, every every city's got like some sort of 
like D Magazine in Dallas or, you know, World Magazine in Pittsburgh. It's usually sort of got, you know, ads about culture and lifestyle and everything like that. You know, you can buy a half-page, full-page ad of that thing. People get it. All you did was write out a check and send it to that guy, and they put up a nice ad. What does that mean in terms of, you know, the quality of their outcome or the quality of the experience or the or the ethical nature of your doctor? Nothing. Um, you know, but they can uh, they can easily, you know, find out, you know, most doctors and certainly, you know, plastic surgeons, they can find out any one of us has got piles of sort of what you might refer to as social evidence. <laughs> yeah. And so they can look at the wisdom of crowds and, they, you know, uh, uh, you know, our experience and not just mine, but across plastic surgery is that there's a pretty profound degree of accuracy. So I think those two trends. Uh, patients can can get a much better handle, even versus just five or six years ago, about what's going on. Basically, um, you, you know, Dr. So-and-so's, his present and past patients, what do they think? Okay, that's number one. Number two, you know, I think they're tuned into the fact that, listen, you know, I need somebody who's like, you know, uh, you know, if, if I want a rhinoplasty, I want somebody who's like really, really, really into rhinoplasty. It's not an occasional sort of, uh, you know, sort of enterprise for them. Yeah. And from a psychological and believability standpoint, what other people say about you is much more powerful than what you could say about yourself. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. And so, you know, what we do, I mean, it, it sounds, uh, you could say it sounds courting or old-fashioned. We just spend, um, you know, we spend the time. We're not any, under any kind of, you know, rush. I think uh, most patients who come into our office, you know, we want to know about the person we want to, and I've alluded to this in various ways here during this discussion, we want to know about the person. We want to know about the motivation. We want to, in, in, in their own sweet time, we want the patients to understand that, um, that uh, you, know, you know, what is it that, uh, that, that we're describing to them? What questions have they? We encourage them to take all the time in the world. There's no rush to do any of this stuff. Come on back in a few months. Pelt us with more questions. And so... You know, we uh, we think uh, we think all of those concepts uh, are key in yep. terms of in terms of patients being psychologically comfortable with you know what they're getting into. Lots of doctors, you know, you don't have to talk to many doctors around wherever you live. That doctors are, you know, especially you know the ones who are taking care of you know uh, you know medicine and big systems and stuff like that. They're under all kind of time pressure. Yet we lean you know very much in the opposite direction, and most of our patients sense that immediately when they come in and talk to us. Yeah, I think you. You hit the the nail on the head right there that having that, uh, talk about communicating to those expectations, they've got better research available, you know, right in the palm of their uh, palm-sized computer that everybody has to get that information and say, okay, yeah, Dr. Leong does the face stuff. When I want anything to do with the face, I go to him. If I needed the tummy tuck or other type of stuff, go somewhere else. And uh Highlighting that is what makes you get you out of the jack of all trades type of category and into this is the guy, this is the one to do this because he does fifty or two hundred or however many you do a year. That's right, Doctor Leong. As we wrap this episode, tell each listener where they can find out about you and what you're currently working on. Absolutely. So um, you know, if you want to learn all about me, um, you can certainly go to our website 
um, our practice is called Cysteine Plastic Surgery, Cysteine like the chapel, www, um, Cysteine, S-I-S-T-I-N-E, PlasticSurgery.com. Uh, you know, you know anybody who knows how to use Google, you know, again, we've talked about it. I would, I would encourage you to review all of the social evidence, reviews, whatever you wish to call it. Um, we definitely, in terms of learning about us, we find that, you know, like a video is a, an important context. So mm -hmm. in addition to all of the lectures that I give around the country and elsewhere in the world, um, we put those up unedited. We think that's, well, again, it's to the transparency ethos, right? Yes. Uh, you'll, I mean, no editing, okay? So when you see me fielding questions or, you know, discussing with my, uh, you know, professional colleagues what I'm teaching them about this or that, you know, you're kind of getting a real skinny like. I mean, if you're listening to what I'm telling them, that's that's probably, you know, you would expect that in that audience if I'm sort of whistling Dixie or saying something silly, you know, I'm not going to do that in front of my peers because they'd call me out. So that's 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 another way to learn about, you know, what we do. Um, no gimmicks. In okay, gotcha. Of, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> in terms of uh, in terms of um, what we're working on, you know, I'll tell you, we um, we have this fabulous. Um, we just bought a, a beautiful building in Pittsburgh, and it's it's a comprehensive sort of health and wellness center. Um, we really do think that. Um, Plastic surgery can play a very positive role in people's lives so long as they're hooked up with a, a good provider who understands what they're what they're going after. But we understand that's not all of what health is about. And so we have this marvelous, um, it's a wonderful historical building, and we're building out another sort of a big office on one side. But on the other side, I have a whole array of absolutely fabulous tenants um, that do everything from acupuncture to Rolfine, Clint. I don't know if you've heard of Rolfine. I have. Uh, being here in Austin. Work. Yeah. 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 Reiki, yeah. all that. Yeah, you bet. Um, nutritional therapy, um, massage type therapy, uh, personal training, and so we are. We're pulling together a very integrated, um, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, center where we've got terrific. Um, you know, professionals who most of which work for themselves, they don't work for me, but what we want to do is create an ecosystem in which people can, uh, you know, uh, uh, identify goals and feel healthy about themselves because quite honestly, we've found that many of the patients who come in for services of the kind that I offer, these are exactly the same. They are in a sense investing in themselves. Um, you know, and the same person who says, you know what, I think I'm going to do a little this or that, whether it's surgical or non-surgical to make myself, you know, appear more vibrant and, you know, sort of, you know, back to the sort of the look that I'm used to. That's the same person who would like to, you know, maybe drop a few pounds, would like to get a bit of education about how they can eat better, would like to manage stress better in their lives, would like to take care of, you know, use acupuncture to help with, you know, some of the, you know, the soreness in their back or, or something of this nature. Yeah. And so it's an exciting, um, you know, prospect for us. Hopefully a chiropractor there. About it. What was that, Clint? I say hopefully a chiropractor there. I've had good results. Absolutely, absolutely. We uh, we absolutely um, have those kind of services historically. One of our chiropractors actually had to uh, move to the West Coast recently, so <laughs> we are we are we're but we're uh, wide open to. We don't have one here right now, but uh, but we're wide open to having that because yes, nice. that's um, those guys add huge value. You you're preaching the philosophy that you actually practice in terms of being complementary with non-surgical and surgical uh, facial procedures and more the holistic side of the health, how those other services complement. So I love how Absolutely. you've set up that ecosystem there. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Thank you for being here with me on the show today, Dr. Leon.
It's an absolute pleasure, Clint. Always happy to talk to an Austinite. You know, it makes, <laughs> for me, sure. uh, makes me nostalgic for my younger days. So. <laughs> yeah, just come here at the end of October. It's super hot right now. Me and the doctor know that your time is the most valuable and only truly limited asset any of us have. So we thank you for sharing this time with us. I'm your host, Clint Evans. I'll see you on the next episode. <laughs>